Welcome to Verbal Art, a podcast where we talk about artsy stuff in different locations. So I'm going to give this one in the Irish language now. People usually think that Irish and English are quite similar, or that we're speaking Irish when we talk with an accent or whatever, but it's all, well, Irish is a completely different language. And uh, we're going to give you a song now called O Roche de Bahawalia. It's uh, an Irish song, it's about kind of um, kicking the Brits out of Ireland, would you believe it or not? But anyway, it's, it's a nice Whoa, one. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll give you some blast. It starts off slow, but it gets going then, so uh, hopefully you get some joy. Yeah, we're in January 2023 now, um, and 
I just realized the other day that Owen had this exhibition and this is the last day it's open, so yeah, this is how verbal art functions. I managed to like swoop in last minute and, and catch the things while they're happening. <laughs> um, so maybe just introduce yourself shortly? Yeah, sure. So, Owen uh, O'Dowd, I'm an Irish multimedia artist. I arrived in Finland about two years ago, around the beginning of COVID. Uh, I made a bunch of work, uh, mostly at home, and this is most of that work. It's culminated in this exhibition, a mixture of collage, some sculpture, some video art, some soundscapes. And I have exhibited quite a bit at home in Ireland, and I also run a gallery in Dublin. And now that I'm here, I kind of start again. But it's actually really pleasant to start again because you get to meet new people and make new connections and go to new art spaces and all that sort of thing. How long have you lived here? Two and a half years. Uh, and you said this is your first show in Helsinki? Yes, yeah. I had a small show uh, in Lofty Fringe, but the space that I was exhibiting in was more of an office foyer, uh, which was fine, just not a classical white cube space. So this is a different sort of experience to that exhibition. And also Lati is a smaller city in the center of southern Finland, so Helsinki is definitely uh, like higher up the ranks of contemporary art. I think so, yeah. I know Lati has a really good uh, design school, so I think... Um, a good underground scene, I think, as far as I've heard. Yeah, and if you like want some short rallies and that kind of thing, that's the place to be, but um, uh, I don't really know uh, where Helsinki and Latifal and Pecking Order, I guess it's down to what kind of art you're consuming. Yeah, I guess. But um, can you help our audience like um, enter the space? Can we just like describe where we are? Yeah, so this is um, the exhibition space is in what I think are the, the old vaulted roots of the basement or half basement that you see in a lot of this part of the world. So when you enter from the street, you go down a couple of steps and then at around chest level is where the windows are. And there are actually quite tall windows for a yeah. basement space here. Yeah, uh, the ceiling is quite low so you, you can feel the, the weight of the building. It feels like quite a heavy space, uh, but it's very solid. Uh, like these are granite walls and I think granite ceiling as well. Um, so you, you enter into the space via the common space which is used by the Art Collective. And there are two rooms that are about the same size. And um, yeah, as you expect, four walls. <laughs> it's like, it's a white cube, but it's yeah. like a cozy white cube. Yeah. <laughs> and for those who haven't listened before, white cube is this like, um, modernist art gallery style prevalent from the 50s and 4th I guess where like all the white walls are white and you space out the art quite a lot so um, what most people think of when they visualize like modern art yeah it has a really interesting floor as well very shiny very shiny floor so it's um it's what do you call it that stuff that you pour it's not concrete like rest yeah the resin but resin yeah yeah, so it's a grey floor, but with a super shiny resin surface. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of spacey because it's so reflective that um, 
Or as soon as you look down, you, you see the exhibition reflected in the ground. Yeah, it's quite nice that, yeah. that several of the works are like continuing in this other dimension. Yeah, it gives them a bit of height. Did you know this before installing? No, I didn't actually. Uh, I had only been in the space one time before during another show that was lit differently. Oh, yeah. And, uh, so, yeah, completely different experience. So, did you change your installation plans when you realized this? Did you work with it? Uh, sort of. Um, the, there's one large piece in the exhibition which is made out of scrap metal, and um, I decided when I brought it here that I would use it to mirror the door. So when you enter from the common space, you can see the sculpture take up the same amount of space as the door frame. Ah. So when you stand outside, you can see both the piece itself and the reflection, which was sort of a happy accident. But um, yeah, everything else, in terms of the collages, they were home more or less where I wanted them to be. And the video projection I changed because there was a small issue with um, uh, accessibility to electric outlets. So rather than having in the original place, I changed it. Yeah, because too many extension cords are also like a visual hassle. And yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big believer that you shouldn't hide cords, just let them be what they are, you know, go across the room or whatever. But um, because a lot of the work is like very delicate in nature, uh, and because it's a small space, and because none of the work is very minimalist, there was just an awful lot of visual noise. So uh, the less cables, the better in this case. And yeah, like I say, I mean, most of these works are quite organic in the material and the colors, yeah. and so the projector does stand out of it. Yeah, oh sure. <laughs> Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, let's get back to maybe describing some of the work. So this work we're talking about with the scrap metal, yeah. it's um, it's all these little etched metal plates, but they're like um, brickstone red and you have hung them to look like a brick wall on the wall. Not intentionally, but... Uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought that was the purpose. It really looks like a red a brick, brick wall. wall with like white... Um, what is it called, these middle parts, like the... Yeah, the filler between the bricks. The filler yeah. parts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what is etched Not on really. them? So, uh, yeah, there's just allegorical images on it. Um, I really wanted to do some drawing, because that's one of the things that happens when you do conceptual artwork, you stop drawing and painting unless you're a painter or a... I artist. sketch a lot for yeah. installations and things. But uh, is that the, in preparation for the work, or yeah, is the work like itself? No, as, as pre-production, yeah. 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 Oh yeah, I'm like a serial doodler, I do a long time. But uh, I, I wanted to um, actually just have some drawings on the show. And uh, I had seen some metal plates uh, just up on a wall in a factory where I work that I thought just were impressive and I wanted to recreate something similar so there is a metal plate on the ground at the base of the metal plates of the wall that I wanted to use but uh, they were too heavy and I wasn't able to cut them without industrial machinery so I used um, some metal scissors on some lighter metal that I found this is just scrap material it's actually flashing from the side of a, a bit side of the building that's protecting the rain gutter uh -huh. that's what that is did you steal it? Nobody was using it. <laughs> uh, it would end up on the, on the trash heap, so it was reused. 
and um, the imagery that's drawn into it, it's just allegorical imagery. I tried my best to just uh, let it flow a bit and draw some figurative imagery. It's full of lots of mythological references, lots of Christian theology. It's not specific to any storyline at all. It's just drawing, so I did my best to just draw uh, and see what kind of um, intuitive influences I have uh, when not drawing abstractly, but trying to actually draw figurative images of people and animals and places and those sort of things. And um, I'm just naturally drawn towards um, archetypal imagery that you'd see in medieval fables and that, that all comes from uh, the interest that I had when I was, when I was a kid and general interest in history and religions that were going away. But it's absolutely not, it's not theistic, it's not religious, it's just, uh, it's just a, an exercise in creating fake allegories. Yeah, can you, I, I assume we have a lot of listeners who are not native speakers, so can you uh, describe, describe what you mean with allegorical imagery? Yeah, so uh, the kind of things that you would think of when you think about a mythology or a folklore or parables, um, so stories that you might associate with, I don't want to be too specific about the nationalities, but um, the kind of creation myths or the kind of mythologies based around religions or national epics. And it's a form of storytelling, basically. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And um, it's all symbolic imagery, and it's a lot of metaphorical representation. There are, there are images of things that could be interpreted as gods and goddesses. There's angel-like creatures. There's, you won't find anything very modern. You'll see things like uh, old wooden boats, a lot of animals, um, fish, horses, dogs. And then uh, elemental things, you'll see a lot of clouds, and then a lot of um, knot work. Knot work is um, the kind of uh, work that you would see commonly in Northern Europe especially, but definitely not exclusive to it, where it's kind of like doodling. Um, if you think about plaiting your hair, uh, you're, you're creating a knot. So it's basically a visual representation of that. And it can go in any which direction. It's like a, a Celtic patterns, right? right? Yeah, this yeah, is like yeah. this is how I would kind of, mm-hmm. um, describe it. So, yeah. but you'll find it. You'll find it in Korea. You'll find it in Australia. Mm-hmm. You'll find it everywhere. But there's undoubtedly there's definitely a big Celtic element to the work, which is a bit of an irony that I never had a deep interest in that in Ireland. But now that I have this uh, distance from my home country, I've become intensely Irish. Oh, it happens. I became more Danish than ever after spending enough time in Asia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I started realizing the Dane in myself. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think that's very human um, because like, it stands out more when it's in contrast or yeah, yeah. Yeah, when it's isolated. And I'm, so all of this like Celtic stuff, it might not in your interest, but maybe it's like part of your DNA in some weird way. Yeah, well, one element of, um, of Irish um, folklore and culture is that there's a, I'm, I'm sure it's true in every country, but uh, storytelling is a really, really important thing. Mm. And um, since I came to Finland, I've met a large group of Irish people. We started an Irish folk band who played traditional Irish music, and that's just uh, storytelling. It's just Stories that other people have written in the past that we can live through vicariously and find like the original expression of that and try and 
find some meaning of it in terms of our own lives. And also it's a communal thing, it's a bunch of like lads getting together doing something that's not just drinking beer, we do that too. But the Irish like to sing together, right? We do, yeah, sing, nice. sing together or half the wimbler, everybody in turn. But um, uh, there's a lot of storytelling, there's a lot of folklore in that as well. Um, but most importantly, as the case for all our work, I think it's uh, it's like a cathartic outlet to express yourself. Something that's like you, you can't specifically explain what it is, so you you make it manifest into something else external. Mm. That's that's healthy, as opposed to you know you know losing yourself to death or whatever. Yeah, for sure. But it's also a manifestation of like feelings that you can't articulate. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> but there is like um, I think directional difference, like uh, drowning your uh, unarticulated emotions is very like uh, inward or like uh, hiding it, trying to push it down, whereas creating visual expression to stand yeah. in its place is like an external, extroverted way of like yeah. pushing it out instead. Sure, yeah, I think it's, I think the closest uh, equivalency to music, I suppose, I think visual art and music are very uh, easy to relate to one another and um, for people who might be less uh, involved in the visual arts it can be quite easy to be scared or um, not see the point of a lot of visual artwork but when you make the, the musical comparison I think culturally we're very quick to accept that alright it's not for me but it certainly has its place not everyone likes free jazz or industrial noise, but people would be quicker to accept that, all right, it's not for me, but it is a form of legitimate expression. I mean, we can still talk about levels of accessibility, uh, for sure, uh, yeah. but um, but I get what you mean. Yeah, some musical genres I really had to practice how to listen to, mm -hmm. like jazz. Mm -hmm. I did, like, it used to stress me out a lot. But where did you start? I don't really know if I started a specific place, but I just, I got quite stressed. Like trance and jazz were two genres that used to stress me out a lot. Yeah. Uh, but then I tried, I listened a lot, I practiced, and now I get it. I am bouncy enough for the trance race, and I can <laughs> listen to jazz without like jumping off my seat all the time. Yeah, I think, I think some things, I'm not a jazz aficionado, but I mean, I probably started by listening to Billie Holiday, which is like pretty approachable. You don't need to jump in with some rap or whatever. No, I think some of the jazz that I finally like could listen to when I was in the early days was more like electronic modern musicians yeah. using jazz uh, as a backbone or um, something like the cinematic orchestra or something that is a little bit okay. more like it's orchestral but not in this like big band overwhelming yeah, <laughs> also you have those kind of cultural affiliations with things sometimes visual associations especially if like your first exposure to some music has to come through a visual medium like a movie or whatever mm -hmm. and jazz was banned in Ireland as you mentioned uh, until relatively recently until like the early to mid 70s or something with like jazz was banned? banned yes you've had a lot of bands in Ireland right? <laughs> like you've had a lot of well we're undoing most of them now uh, but uh, yeah <laughs> Why? Because it was the devil's music? Or exactly, that's exactly that. right, yeah. You know, it, uh, it, it encouraged people to get rhythmic and forget about the Holy Ghost, you know? 
<laughs> well, yeah, there was a pietism period in Denmark in the 1700s where the, at one point... Uh, 1700s, not 1970s. So yeah, yeah, but at one point in the 1700s we, there was a king in Denmark who was very pietistic religious and so he enforced a lot of prohibition on things like dancing and drinking and partying and music like basically everything yeah. for a short while was illegal right short while <laughs> for a short while yeah, yeah exactly Very in the 1700s <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah okay but so um all of these uh red metal plates that you have created with these folk imagery or religious uh, connotations and stuff, they are like, they're not connected? No, no. Because they're hanging a little bit like a brick wall cartoon series. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it's, it's another one of those medieval influences. It's like the Bay Tapestry or something like that. So I, I wanted the people who were viewing it to, to project their own allegories, their own stories into the imagery, uh, or to, you know, desperately try and find meaning in it somewhere. Uh, the brickwork, so to speak, just happened fairly organically in order to have the plates of metal balanced. Mm. And they were red to begin with, you didn't? Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that kind of burgundy colour is um, pretty common in, uh, in Roman Catholicism. I thought it was a nice um, throwback to some of the other references in the imagery. So you did paint them? No, 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 they were no. found. found they were found this yeah. way. And so the etching means that like all the etched lines, they are silver colored or aluminium colored, I assume, but yeah. which is the same. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, this ochre red. Yeah, exactly. With, yeah. with these like silver drawings. Can we highlight just like one or two? Can you choose something? To, um, so uh, the bottom left, maybe there's an image that's something like a crypt. Mm-hmm. It's like a brick, brick room. There's some heavy wooden doors on the left, on the right there's some kind of like prison bars. In the distance there's a large wooden building that has a fire pit burning in the center. In the crypt itself there's a (coughs) miscellany of um, pottery and broken tools and weapons. And then there's something like a coffin. Underneath it there's a raised mound with a corpse. And on top of the coffin there appears to be some kind of um, bound corpse. so there are like, two dead people. Yeah, if, if they're people. Oh yeah, but I they, they have human shape. They certainly do. And then above that there's kind of an angelic figure uh, whose lower torso is um, uh, barley, like uh, wheat. I, I'm not so close, I thought it was an owl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and there's some kind, of, uh, some kind of ceremony going on. There's a ceremony going on in just about all of them. Okay, uh, is this ritualistic aspect um, an important, like, central idea? Yeah, it's not something that I'm investigating, it's just, uh, it's just a, a motif that pops up time and time again. I think because, uh, you know, the act of creating is a kind of magical thing in and of itself. And yeah, it's like a ritual process, yeah. I could say that. And I see the gallery as a kind of... Uh, like a gallery can be any number of things, it can be a space for protest or documentation or whatever, but I, I do like the idea of it as a kind of temple for introspection, a kind of a thing away from the world where you're not expected to um, move at the same pace as, as you do when you go about your daily life. And also it's, um, unless, like, okay, so depending on who's running the galleries, but they are a little bit these spaces that are free, 
in terms of like opinions and uh, culture like so the gallery space is a free space where you are allowed to raise questions and discuss um, topics in a different way yeah yeah as opposed to like a, a blue ribbon gallery which is you know commercially driven which is effectively a shop I mean there are definitely you know, state-run galleries and stuff right. but like yeah. if compa- compared to like politics or something you know Artists can like, change the discourse, or yeah, yeah. but they're allowed to do it in a different way because art is a little bit this like sacred free mm. area. It's like an open mic night. Like an open mic night <laughs> where like people are not trying to censor you too much, yeah. but then again, no, there's also a lot of censorship in the art world. But like the maybe the legitimacy of gallery spaces is that we have somewhere to to do something in our own way. Like you, yeah. yeah, and they're they're a platform, you know. They they raise money so that you can do those things. Yeah, exactly. Because in public space, there would yeah. be a different uh, set right. of rules to follow. For yeah. instance, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's removed from the world. Or at least I, I think the way I like to see galleries is that they are removed from the external society, even though they might be a reflection of what's. And, and they are still public spaces. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully, they're in that way. But yeah, it's a little bit funny because you did also set it up like an altar here somehow so this metal plate on the floor in front like is it a metal shelf from a from a shelf system uh yeah it's something that we use at the factory where we work um, pretty much what it is so it's it's uh on top of the metal shelf there's all of these metal scraps that are cut from the uh the burgundy pieces mm. and that's sort of just a throwback to another art piece that I made a couple of years ago, which was a large concrete wall where I carved uh, headless animals and like a headless horse into the concrete. And uh, the chippings I saved and then the chippings that came off the original concrete were like the idea of that's the thing that's missing. So there's now a, 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 a counter-relief of an, of an object and now that object is these chippings on the ground so it felt like it was an investigation on materiality and that's what this is too so they're not just completely random pieces they're pieces that have been cut away from the original um, burgundy plates okay so like the negative space in between the plates on the wall yes. is like actually not existing it's a construct which but yeah negative space is not a thing because they're Condensed molecules everywhere, but but we have now the empty space laid out as like these very organic shapes on the floor. It's they're contrasting a lot with this square uh, strip grid you have created because they're really round and loose, and they um, they seem to be able to almost jump away on their own. Yeah, that that redness is just just is the you know you scissors and you cut to it, it's just a natural uh, momentum as you, as you mm. push the scissors through an object. Yeah, little fringes of metal. Did you place them very neatly or did you just toss them there? A little bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's to look uh, authentically chaotic in yeah. uh, the right way. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had a talk in the last episode about this, uh, about decorating parties and stuff. There's some of the same ideas that it has to look like coincidental but it has to still be balanced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. 
And this metal plate or shelf is a little bit raised, a few centimeters tall, so to me it looks like a plinth or like podium, yeah. and it's almost becomes this altar. Yeah, I'm very happy to hear that. Yeah. 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 That's what you wanted. I'm not even sure what I wanted, uh, but uh, the more um, religious affiliations it has, the better. Mm. Yeah, but I do think, and since it's the central piece that you see when you step in from the door and all, like, it, I do feel like it seems like you have offered up these like scrap pieces to this like mythical cartoon on the wall somehow. <laughs> um, and again, talking about uh, what was it? You said something before, and, and I wanted to say this, and then we talked other things, and I forgot. But about the whole like rituals, and there's a ritual going on, and the sacred thing, and an offering, or I do feel like art spaces and art exhibitions is somehow a little bit of like this reverse offering that the artist sets up the altar or the offering things that then the people come to like consume in some way to yeah. receive, you know? It's like, um, what is it called in English when you get the, uh, the, the wine and the, which is normally lemonade, the lemonade and the little crackers in church. The, the communion. The, the communion, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so somehow artists, like, also you go and you, like, receive something, like mental food or, yeah, visual yeah. food, and you get to, like... You're, you're, hang, you're hanging the bones of the, of the sacrifice out of the altar. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that was more gory. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I actually once had this idea of using those little cardboard crackers from church to paint little pictures on and then people could like literally consume the art. Yeah, yeah. But I don't really know if it's my place to make religious uh, art pieces, I don't know. Well, it depends on what your objective is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I didn't really have a purpose, I just liked the idea that you could eat my art. I think that's reasonable. That this is, you're not being critical of anyone's beliefs and it's, it's perfectly legitimate. I thought about getting some a uh, couple of couple of thousand pieces of Eucharist myself we'll put in the corner of the money thing. Yeah that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and they are like cardboard almost so I think they yeah. could be easy to paint on or print or something. I was thinking they're quite delicious. No, I haven't I haven't, I haven't had them for a long time. But uh, I always like the taste them. Yeah. <laughs> okay and in front of this brick wall do you have some metal keys hanging in oh, there? Yeah. This was a late addition, so this was a... I will move to see on the other side. What is it? <laughs> it looks kind of like a compass hanging from the ceiling in front of the, the altar. Um, I thought it was a very large pocket watch at first. Yes, yeah. it looks like that too, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's... I don't want to give you too much, but it's, it's made out of um, scrap again. You created the object? Uh, it's made out of uh, pieces of a doorbell. Uh-huh. And some other bits that I found. And then there's some light in it? There's a light inside it, yeah. Um, when I had this show lit slightly differently, uh, this light was shining directly against these metal pieces. So, I'm moving the light now to give an idea mm. of when this light it's was... very dimmed in this space. Oh yeah, well it is the last day of the exhibition, so... <laughs> so the batteries are <laughs> so going Okay, yeah. <laughs> Is it just like an LED light? Uh, yeah, it's just a bicycle light. Ah, okay, yeah, but then you have something orange in front of yeah, it. Yeah, some, so gel, some gels. Yeah, hmm. sure. Nice. 
And let's talk about some of the other pieces. Yeah. Because there are like, is it a series, these other ones? There is like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven? Yeah. Do you, what do you call them? Collages? Or? Yeah, I think probably wrongly calling them collages. I guess they're reassemblages as opposed to collages. Ah, yeah, and I remember we had talked about this before yeah. because I, uh, well, I know Owen because last year I was running this residency in the countryside with Cosmo, who I interviewed for this series also. And we didn't actually talk about this, but yeah, I ran this art residency in the countryside where Owen spent a few weeks. So we talked about these, uh, this way of collaging, but maybe you can describe to the listeners what, what it is. Yeah, so they're mostly A3, A4 framed mounted images. Uh, the original images are a mixture of uh, high renaissance and um, some baroque imagery. So they all have human figures in them, uh, of their faces or shoulders or, or, or full bodied. And um, they're all collages in the sense that they have been cut up, that they're all hand cut pieces of paper. Where did you find the original source different, of imagery? Different art books. Okay. Yeah, just different art books. And, um, you know, chart shops and that kind of thing. Mm. And uh, I would pick an image just based on aesthetic preference. I don't know who all of them are. Uh, I, I, I imagine some of them are just, I know some of them are just mythological figures and flora. Uh, and uh, there's also some images of saints, and then some probably important people from, uh, I don't know, Castile and Aragon. And then there's also uh, one of a sculpture from Michelangelo of the Virgin Mary. And uh, all of them have been hand cut in the sense that the original information has been reassembled. Uh, so if you were to imagine a picture and you cut a square into it, and then you cut another square into it, and then you swap those two squares around, then that's a reassemblage of the original image. Mm. Only that you haven't cut squares in these, they're all these different shapes. Yes, yes, very organic shapes. Some of them are like flames, some of them are like, like floral images, like leaves, and some of them are Celtic knots. But the point is that the image is not a combination of multiple images, it's still the original image. And nothing has been removed. Nothing's removed, nothing's added, nothing's concealed. It's just been replaced within yeah. the same frame. That's exactly right. So is it a very mathematical uh, job to do this, or...? Some of them can be, yeah, like the, the Celtic knot one uh, requires a little bit of um, gridding beforehand in order to make it even. But the vast majority of them are completely organic, they're like figurative drawings. Uh, and then when you decide the location of the, the cuttings, it's quite painterly because you're trying to find a nice contrast between the place where the piece goes in relation to the area around it. So do you end up having layers and some empty spaces in the image or do you make sure that like it's only one layer the whole time? It's only one layer, uh, there will be no gaps because every piece that's cut has an exact replica somewhere that they slot into. So you decide you really want this piece to be this shape and then you have to cut another place like yeah. in the exact same. Yeah. So you a lot of decisions are made for you in the process in this way maybe because you yeah, have to like fifty percent pretty much. Yeah, you have to compromise. Yeah. You yeah. you want one colour or shape to go in one place, so that means that place you put it to 
will lose exactly that shape and mm-hmm. color, and then you have to find somewhere that that fits. Yeah, it can be a little bit mathematical in the sense that when you cut point A, you'll immediately swap your point B. You might uh, do 30 different cuts, all randomly different shapes, and then you decide after that, that okay, now I need to find the, the, the duplicate for each of these. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, that way it makes the, the process a little bit more um, spontaneous. Yeah, and so do you have a very clear idea from the beginning? What you, do you choose the image based on like, I want to do this with this image? Like you already have a plan when you select the source material? Uh, I think all of these ones at least, yeah, more or less. Most of these come from initially drawings. So I'll, uh, I'll have either a drawing already made and then I'll find an image that I think will fit that drawing. Or I'll have selected an image that I like because of the movement in the image, and then I'll uh, project the drawing on top of that, and then make the collage imitate that drawing. But it is important that all the images have some kind of tension. They all have a like, movement. They're all they're all directional, and um, that's just a common theme as well to the work as well. They're all full of tension. Yeah, and like you can kind of the source imagery is preserved to some degree in all of them but then yeah. it's like it has been morphed so there's a woman over here that where this like lace pattern is growing up her body and around her because of your cuttings yeah and this other face where the eyes are preserved and the, the rest um, of the face completely obliterated yeah, the face has been turned into these like wavy shapes, and then uh, the eyes in the center yeah. are just like monstrous um, masks <laughs> somehow. Yeah. And then you can see this clerical yeah. uh, like um, color that a wear or something. Yeah. Yeah, uh, or this with the flames. Where in the front ground we have this collage of the f- something burning, and then in the background is the original image of a city. Yeah, and that, that's just um, what happens with each image using different options. Like the, the, that guy who looks like his head is on fire, that's just because uh, the cloak that he was wearing was these reddish colors, and most of the images that look like flames came from his clothes. Oh, it's a guy, I thought it was a bonfire. Oh, I can see that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I see the eyes sticking out of the flames. Yeah, I tend to retain the eyes. What was the choice to frame them? Like, um, do you generally like to frame your images, or is it for protection? I don't know. I suppose um, framing them gives them some kind of legitimacy. Uh, it kind of. Um, what do you mean with that? Yeah, it kind of makes them more official, especially when they're. Like now they're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure, put a ribbon on it, but uh, because when they are just pieces of paper. Um, Hanging them just becomes uh, more complicated uh, and they just feel quite flimsy. And I feel like when you put work into something, it becomes a little bit more grandiose. And for that reason, I decided to frame them. But I, I have honed my collages before uh, just loose. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, they, they have a strange sort of feeling to them. Uh, they don't really jump out. But when people look at these works when they are collaged, uh, they have a lot more questions about them. I think they feel less afraid of like not touching them, mm-hmm. but, but it's investigating them a little bit more. I've had lots of questions. People have thought that they were um, prints or that they were um, made of multiple images or whatever. I mean, some of them, if you see them from a distance, could also look like digitally rendered that you thought that 
maybe it would have been yeah. like a, a Photoshop manipulation or sure. something, or graphic yeah. design. Yeah, yeah, I, um, I think that's a compliment because I, I think they're just they're, they're precise enough that they look like they could be computer rendered. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but no, I, I mean, computer rendering has its place, and I do, I do favor that kind of work too. But um, uh, no, I think uh, because these are physical and tactile, you have you have uh, infused your physical energy into the work without getting too woo about it. <laughs> and, 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 you, and you can see the, the consequences of physical action in the work. Yeah, so how do you actually um, do this work? Do you work with a scalpel or a box cutter? Or? Yeah, yeah, no pointing on a scalpel on my arm. Um, oh, you have a scalpel tattoo? <laughs> wow. um, this is very corny. <laughs> just a coincidentally. But um, uh, yeah, so it's just cut with a standing blade. Do you ever make mistakes and have to curse and um, change your plan? No, from from uh, from early on, I accepted that like you when you're when you're making this kind of work, you don't really make mistakes. You just what happens is that you, you just adapt to, and then that that's a part of the piece. Mm. You know, the same like for for I guess for a lot of people are doing drawing, unless you're trying to represent something that already exists in the world, uh, you're not really going to make a mistake. You just let that happen and adapt to it, it's now part of the work. Mm. And how long does it take you to make one of these, approximately? I would say, I think two minutes, six hours. Yeah, but I am working really slowly, uh, because I enjoy making them. And you uh, have to be meticulous. You do, yeah. It's delicate work. Working with paper is delicate and these like some of these cuttings are very small like the, yeah. the scale of yeah. the little bits and pieces you have cut in some of them is yeah. very tiny and you have to breathe quite slowly your heart rate goes down if you breathe too much you will blow the yeah. paper away yeah. 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 yes it, it, it will take a few days to be realized but in terms of the actual amount of time of cutting and reassembling mm -hmm. i'd say collecting it that comes about six hours and then you just glue them with a glue stick or something um yeah, well, the back of them have like a, they're mounted onto a card. So, yeah, so um, I usually use like a double sided tape or something like that. But some of them are just um, just flat, they're within the frame. So you, uh, if I remove the frame, then they would just be flat with the piece. And I, I prefer that, it makes them more delicate, but uh, it, it gives it, I don't know, it gives it more of a sense of like austerity or something because I, I just don't like certain kind of uh, materials and red sticks and whatnot. I avoid them if I can. Okay. Why? They have their, their place, and I don't think it's in the creation of like a venerable object. Mm -hmm. If I could, I'd be using some, something much more uh, pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> Do you use tools like um, tweezers and uh, magnifying glasses and yeah. stuff? Yeah. yeah. I, have, I did use magnifying glasses for a while, but I find they actually stuck in the way. You're better off just getting your thumbs right down into the image. And then um, there are two pieces left. Right. I guess that is those two parts they belong together, right? They do, yeah. So um, I will move the mic also so that we don't lose our voices. Um, yeah. So okay. So now we have reached the last two pieces, and this is the most organic and the least organic piece yes. that we now have next to each other. Yes. 
you decide which one to start with. Uh, I'll start with the headpiece. So um, it's a headpiece. Yes. Uh, so hanging in the door frame uh, in the gallery space, there's uh, uh, what's the what's the what kind of geometrical shape is this? It's like a cone shape, I would yeah, say. Yeah. Um, and it's a door frame that no one is using, right? It's an emergency yeah, door. Yeah, but I think it might be accessible to the part of the building that we don't use. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little bit like it has this um, carved in. Um, Spot in the room. What is this called when it's like uh, this carved in place? Depression, uh, counter relief. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, but it's <laughs> yeah. a little hallway. But it's a, it's a little like carved in spot to put something, and it's hanging. Well, everything that's hanging is hanging with fishing wire, so it's like the hanging is invisible. It's floating in the yeah. air. Yeah. And, and then what is dark space too? So it's uh, not immediately obvious that anything is being hung. But okay, so what is it we're looking at? Because we didn't actually say that. We just say that it's cone shaped. <laughs> no one knows what we're talking it's about. It's a cone shaped object in the hallway. So it's a, it's a headpiece that is made from uh, hay, uh, well, from straw, I should say, and from uh, other pieces that we find around uh, like the river and some, some mossy parts. Some twigs or sticks? Yeah, or there's some twigs and sticks and materials in it. There's also. Um, Pieces of metal. There are things like keys and uh, oh. random scraps that you can find. But it's hidden quite well. From here, yeah. where I'm sitting, you can only see. It. It's yeah. very natural. Yeah, the, the straw is um, is twisted into a rope uh, by uh, by taking pieces and pushing them together, and then turning them in a sort of like a counter movement way that they reinforce each other, and then. Those those ropes of straw are then decorating the headpiece. Uh, there's a front part of it which is something like a veil that would hang over the face, and at uh, the top there it's something a knot. It twists into a little loop. And so it's all made by hand. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> and do you, where did you collect these materials? Uh, mostly from the river near my house. And uh, also, I know a guy who knows a guy who has horses, so we to get some straw. <laughs> and uh, then it's it's been decorated by uh, there's a red light inside it, so because it's in this enclave, maybe that was the word. I don't know. Oh yeah, maybe uh, yeah. So it's a little bit darker than the rest of the space. So this red light was just to try and highlight the area a little bit, and that bounces down onto the ground, uh, so you can see a red light beneath it. And then directly underneath the headpiece, there is a small square mirror. On top of the mirror, there is a piece of driftwood, which is from Ireland, actually. I've had that piece for a couple of years. Oh. And um, that's directly underneath the headpiece. The headpiece I made uh, with a group of other guys, Irish and Finnish, they have their headpieces also. They all made their own. Is it an Irish thing with these headpieces? Yeah, this is from a tradition. Um, there's a couple of similar traditions around the country. There's wren boys, straw boys, mummers, that kind of thing. Okay, so actually like made from straw and hay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm sure there's lots of very similar things, um, but uh, the idea is that people would wear these masks at festivals or on days like weddings and funerals and stuff. And uh, they would play music and they would arrive at people's houses. And um, the people in the houses would need to feed them and drink them. And uh, it's just a form of uh, 
paganistic entertainment that, that uh, happened, died out more or less, but it's had something of a revival in recent years. So was it specific people who would wear these, or would everyone at the wedding don their own homemade straw headpiece? Depends where you are in the country, but uh, yeah, only specific people, uh, a small group usually rooms. I think with mumming it's, it's around 12 people. And uh, where I come from, the, the mummers are from a particular family, so not just anybody can do it. Are they religious people? Religious in the sense of like Judeo-Christianity? Uh, like, I don't know, like, because it's a, a specific group of people wearing like specific <laughs> uh, head pieces and then you have to feed them and I don't know, it sounds like religious or... Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's, it definitely happens external to like Roman Catholicism. I'd say probably some of those people were pretty pious, but they also have their own traditions. But it's more folklore, it's higher, yeah, yeah. so it's older, or... Yeah, well, well some of them are probably medieval, but uh, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say where a lot of these originated from. Uh, and because I play traditional music with these guys, uh, we made these headpieces, and of course Halloween being an Irish festival, we decided we'd make these on Halloween and we played a, played a gig. We walked around the streets of Helsinki wearing these uh, player instruments and freaking out some locals. And um, this was kind of a late addition to the exhibition, but I felt like it, it, uh, it incorporated a lot of the other elements in my work, you know, in that it is paganistic, in that it is investigational materials, that it is um, quite a carefully made piece. So I felt like it had a place here. It's quite delicate for actually wearing it around the city on Halloween and stuff. Did it break? It's not as delicate as you think. It looks it. It looks it. It's very sturdy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's full of meters and meters of straw and rope. So. Okay. <laughs> was it pleasant to wear, or was it really scratchy? And because there are like a lot of sticks sticking out around where your face would be. I've got pretty thick hair, so it didn't bother me too much. Okay. Um, but uh, I know some of the other guys did take theirs off during the night, which you're not supposed to do, but look, we'll forgive them this time. Is it harvest connected since it's made from straw and hay? Yeah, yeah, like, um, like I suppose these probably have a lot of their origins to do with um, seasonal festivals. Mm-hmm. So it probably does have a connection with that. And, and then there's like um, fringed layer in the front is the veil you say. So did you have to look through this yeah. layer of straw the whole night? Yeah. In the finished autumn darkness? Right. So, but you know, anonymity is, is a really important part of like... The, but could the, you walk and not like, fall? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. It's a... Um, it's important that it is a mask, you know, it's supposed to conceal okay. who you are, give a, a kind of a sense of like, uh, mystery to the person's identity. Because um, a lot of the fun is lost if if you're getting married in a local place and then like a few guys show up and you immediately know who they all are, then some of the some of the mystery, some of the the danger element is immediately lost. But what was the purpose of these guys showing up at the wedding? Did they do something or it's usually luck based, so so in the case of um, uh, Straw Boys, they, uh, they would show up at a, a wedding or a ceremony, they'd play music, you would feed them and you'd give them a drink, and if, they, if you did a good job, um, they would burn their headpieces outside afterwards, and if you did a bad job, they would throw them into the trees where they would rot, so they'd become like an unsightly, but it's also to do with luck. I mean, the idea of luck and, and all superstition persists everywhere. It certainly exists in Ireland. Even people like myself who claim not to be mm-hmm. superstitious, I still do all those things. I bless myself and 
you know, touch wood and salute to magpies and all that sort of thing. You do that? Yeah. You salute to magpies? I, do, yeah. I don't know what that means. Well, you know the black and white birds. Yeah, I know what yeah, magpies yeah, yeah. It's the ones that like the shiny things. Yes, and um, they have beautiful, like, blue tail feathers and stuff. Yeah. But why do you salute them? Because it's something I learned was earlier that you had to do in order to avoid bad luck. Some of those things have been worth unlearning for sure because they're an unnecessary source of stress in your life. <laughs> in Danish, um, we have a lot of homonyms, which means words that are yeah. spelled and pronounced the same way but have different meanings. Yeah. They can even be different word classes. Um, yeah, I guess it's a poor language and we recycle a lot. But the word for magpie is the same word uh, for damage. Oh, it's great. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, like I'm sure the belief has some kind of like etymological origin. You know, sure. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe it could even have Danish origin. Like uh, the plenty of Danish influence in Ireland specifically. So, yeah, from around the 10th or 11th century, that was a long time ago. Viking time. Yeah. Yeah. And then the very last piece is somehow um, sticking out quite a bit because it's a digital piece in the middle of this very organic, handmade exhibition. Um, it's a video projection on the wall. I mean, the, the, sh the projection, the shapes and the imagery is very organic, but it's still a digital black and white projection. What, what is it? It's very hard for me to tell you what this is. Uh... So it's a projection, but it's not a projection within um, square parameters. It's uh, it's 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 shaded in such a way that it it's, looks like a cloud. Yeah, it's a kind of a ghostly cloud type thing. <laughs> Some people has told me it looks like you know the inside of a colon or something like that wherever they've been. And uh, I have never been inside a colon. No, neither. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just this kind of like ghostly. Representation. Uh, I wanted to have something that was quite meditative to look at and a little bit spooky. <laughs> I mean, a spooky element to all of the work. Um, it, so basically, it's a, it's a four minute video that changes from being quite a blurred image into like a hyper sharp, very uh, tactile, physical representation. Um, the whole idea of like, um, Fleshiness and temporality is uh, something that I find really interesting with uh, um, that the association of that with religious beliefs. Mm. Uh, I find it strange that uh, in the case of Irish Catholicism, the, there's so much uh, interest in uh, the here and the now and not so much the spiritual aspects. The idea of the soul is there, but there's an absolute obsession with sin and physicality and sex and blood. And you need to look at our no further than saints who are more often than not carrying their own heads or some other kind of like horror element. And also like all the saints like were people who died, right? So like it's very earthly yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the time. Yeah, they're 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 people who have transcended to like this, you know, angelic realm or whatever, mm -hmm. but they're still represented by this very fleshy, tactile, uh, temporal, physical, organic representation. Because that was the way for them to transcend, to have some horrible death in the name of Yeah, God. some cause or another, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. Yeah, and in Denmark, uh, the, the 
dominant religion is Protestantism, so uh, we don't have saints because humans cannot transcend in this way. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's um, it's interesting because it's, it's it's quite paganistic, I think, in the sense that it's a big pantheon of demigods and quasi gods and. Uh, oh yeah, maybe we have been saying this word paganistic a lot, but like. Um, in case someone doesn't know, paganism is this more uh, nature-based folk uh, religion, like pre-dating Christianity, uh, at least in Northern Europe. Yeah, or at least it's rival, sure, yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and you'll find elements, like you said, of paganism in language, mm-hmm. in, in you know, traditional ceremonies, like I mentioned earlier, uh, all kinds of customs. Back when people were uh, sacrificing to nature and animal uh, ideals of gods and yeah, uh, yeah. Sure. yeah, yeah, just I always try to keep this podcast very like accessible for all levels of uh, comprehension yeah. and language, and so we explain a lot of terms. Right, not everybody's interested in things that I'm interested or interested in, so yeah, definitely. And also, people come with different like. Um, uh, mother tongues and yeah. different uh, cultural uh, horizons. And yeah. So, yeah. I think it's fair to say that just about everywhere in the world there will be some equivalency of paganism. Oh, for sure. Of, yeah. yeah. Without, without exception. And so, is this imagery, for me, it looks like a morphing cloud. Like, sometimes it becomes lighter and sometimes it's more of a stormy cloud. But is it. Uh, Actual like video that you have filmed somewhere, or is it computer generated? Anyway, obviously you can stand. No, you don't have to. It's, it's okay to say <laughs> you don't want to say it like no, that. Perfectly, perfectly. No, this is computer generated. Okay. Yeah, um, but I, I tried to be as subtle about it as possible. This is not um, like an experiment in computer graphics. It's an effort to try and make something that's difficult to determine what it is, mm-hmm. and. Um, yeah, sometimes it does look pretty realistic if you could get a camera down your throat or whatever. But um, it's actually the beginning of a longer video that uh, I was lucky enough to exhibit with Kino Club here in Helsinki twice. And um, it's an excerpt from a longer video called Votive. And uh, I was going to play the longer video piece, which is a little bit more narrative based. It's all abstract imagery, but um, it still follows a kind of linear storyline of sorts. Uh, but because it's a small space with a lot of visual information, I thought better to have this uh, repetitive imagery that's something that you can focus on and zone out to a little bit. It also becomes like a painting in itself, just like a painting made of like morphing light on the wall and not yeah. framed, but it does just become this like moving image somehow. Yeah, I think it's, it's a little bit unsettling, I think. Uh, some people come in, it's a little, makes people feel a little uneasy because it's hard to tell what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but thankfully for them, there's a projector across the room, so you can figure out what it's going quickly. But um, yeah, I, I know that for some people coming in, do pick up on the kind of religious undertone, and for their mm-hmm. own reasons, one reason or another, they can find that unsettling or not. <laughs> and then there is a sound piece that goes yeah. along with the video, yeah. which is what you have maybe heard in the background. There is this sound loop that sometimes increases in volume and becomes like, I guess, maybe a background noise in this recording, but it's part of the soundscape here. And 
What is it? Is it's in direct correlation to the video piece because the, I wanted the video to feel something like it's alive. So the sound is something like a, a neutral kind of sound. And I've been told that when you come into the space, it has kind of a womb-like feeling to it, which I thought was an interesting take. And uh, the, I do like this sort of drone and minimalist tone uh, that is not, not dissimilar to what you might find in a religious space anywhere in the world. And um, it also has a practical aspect to it. Uh, projectors are loud. Well, some projectors are loud. This right. projector is very loud. It's because of the fan. So projectors, for those who don't know, uh, they tend to get quite hot. And, um, well, it, these kind of uh, digital machines, they don't like heat so much. They also don't like extreme cold. They like to be very tempered, like a computer. And so that's why there are fans incorporated in all this machinery to right. protect the electronics. And some projectors, the fans are very, very loud. Actually so loud that it can like greatly disturb your video show. Yeah, especially in a small space um, with the kind of acoustics that the space has. Mm. Um, so I put it not just because I wanted to make the video piece feel like a living organism, but because um, uh, it created that interesting sense of ambience, you're looking at the rest of the space. And what it is, is a recording of, uh, that I made again in the factory, we spent a lot of time there, and uh, it's been slowed down maybe 8,000 times until it's uh, in the same key as the rotating fan and the projector. <laughs> so that way it's, uh, it's a little bit less disturbing. And how did you know what key the projector fan was in? Did you just have such a good ear that you can hear it, or did you use machines to determine? Uh, I don't think I have a great ear, but I did use my ear, because you know, I'm a musician, and, yeah. Yeah, so I try my best to do it. And it moves, it moves back and forth between uh, being in pitch and... Mm. So, did you create the sound piece for this projector, or did you just tune it to... Uh, to what is it called? To jam with the projector. I, I had a recording already that I was that I put into the right key. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, it was just a recording of me driving before truck. But it's funny because you turn the projector into this like musician in the space. Yeah. That they're like these machines are jamming together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now maybe I will try to put the to just raise the recorder to the actual because the sound is hidden behind the projector, so it's all coming from up here in the corner. that it's a recording from the factory you work in. Can we talk about this factory? Because you've mentioned it so many times. What, oh, well, what, what does it do? I, I work in a, um, like a distribution center that, uh, for flowers. So oh. it's, just, it's just a noisy factory full of boxes and four trucks. Yeah. Okay, so it's not like this big industrial... Um, it's, it's very industrial because of its size. It's full of big fans and refrigerators and things like that. Okay, but they don't... Like, what do they produce there? They just redistribute. They, so they, they get flowers from other places in the world and then they, they get sent out into trucks that bring them to your shopping center. Okay, flowers that have been cut or they're still alive? We got both. Okay. 
Yeah, so not exactly a, a passion, but um, you know, you can you got to pay your bills, and uh, you can either be an artist or a job or somebody with a job who's an artist. I mean, working in a flower factory already sounds like some kind of narrative uh, starting point to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not as romantic as it sounds. Like it's not it's not a greenhouse. It's a it's a big coal factory. <laughs> yeah, sure. But it's it's pretty good. I, I like my fortune. I like my podcasts. Did you used to work in factories in Ireland as well? When I was a teenager, yeah. Uh, so I was an English teacher in Ireland for a couple of years after that, and then worked in that gallery for six years. But um, it's interesting that now that I've been here for two and a half years, and I'm kind of starting again, I'm also starting again with the, my work career, doing some similar work I did when I was a teenager. But I'm very happy to have the work, especially that I arrived during Corona, so to get any work at all was really a blessing. And you don't speak Finnish, no. so there's also a limitation to what kind of jobs you could apply yeah. for here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, how does it feel to, like, as you say, start over as, like, people work-wise and art-wise and, and all of this? I mean... I think it depends on what day you, what day you catch yourself thinking about it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sometimes it feels really refreshing and really liberating. Mm. And then other times it feels like it's, uh, you know, a really Herculean task and not really worth it. Uh, but you have to just remember why you're why you're making work in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. And I mean, you said this is your first show in Helsinki, and you've been here for a few years. Was it that you didn't look for anywhere to show anything, or was it that you applied and didn't get any shows? Uh, I mean, I had looked at places and open calls. The, the the way it's done here is so different to Ireland. In terms of when you get an open call in Ireland, it's usually for that year or the following year, as opposed to two or three years in advance. Uh, and um, also, I found that it's a lot less centralized here. Uh, usually, you need to look one place in order to find out where all the applicable opportunities are. In Helsinki. In, in Ireland. In Ireland. But, okay. in, but in, in Finland, uh, in general, then um, you only find those opportunities if you're a part of. Um, some kind of agency newsletter or what have you, which I have now, which I find quite helpful. And that there are, you know, there are institutions that, that can help with that. But in Ireland, I think there's just really one that really has a monopoly. So as long as you subscribe to them, you'll see all the open calls and all the opportunities. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're quite fortunate in school. There's this one office worker who compiles like um, yeah. open call emails and to send them out to us. Yeah. Oh, you're always <laughs> oh, controlling the sound piece with his phone. Um, yeah, but also I tend to just like follow all these different collectives and galleries on Facebook so that I it pops up in my news feeds yeah. with open calls and stuff. Yeah, you just gotta find what works best for you. Like there's a way to go about it. There are a lot of big international groups also. Yeah. I mean, those I also follow because I do post a lot of open calls, but. Um, But yeah, sure, it's a little bit these things, either you're in a loop of something or you're not. You gotta get your hands dirty a little bit, I think, you know, like, I will I will love to try and join some kind of collective, and I would long-term like to set up my own art space as well. I know, I know Arch people have done that here, and it doesn't have to be, you know, for the next 40 years. It's just, it's a way to get yourself into the game. 
But you have your Irish folk music collected now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. and I would change it for the world. Yeah. Did you go looking for Irish guys to play music with, or did you stumble upon them? Uh, my partner encouraged me to join uh, an Irish sports group. Um, though I'm not the sportiest person, and uh, you know, for I can imagine for different cultural reasons, you know, you, you tend to have to have a sporty background if you want to keep on playing sports. And in Irish sports, there's long-established traditions. If you play a particular game, it's because your parents played the game and your siblings play the game and all that. Is it sports games that we do not have in the rest of the world? Are they particular to Ireland or are they normal sports? Yeah, <laughs> they're normal in Ireland. Uh, we have Gaelic football and we have uh, hurling and then there's also handball, which is it's kind of like alley, alley ball sort of. And, uh, but um, hurling was the game that I played, which is, um, I never played as a kid. Uh, not properly, not in an competitive way. And um, it involves a stick and a ball, which is something similar to a baseball. But it's a field game. You knock the ball in the air. Uh, like cricket? Not like cricket. Uh, much better game than cricket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a team game and, and uh, it's, it's a little bit like lacrosse. That's the thing people okay. associate it with. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, there was a couple of guys there, and um, we were all interested in music. And some of us had a little bit of experience performing, so we decided that we would get together. And uh, because folk music and storytelling is so crucial, it's such a big part of Irish culture that uh, we really found that we needed. And um, like it's become a really integral part of all of our lives now to have this folk group. It's really important for all of us, and I like to think that it's it's important for other people by extension. Because we have these performances where people can get together and everybody knows these songs. We have our own tunes too, but like almost everybody would have been exposed to this music uh, either to their own family or in pubs because an Irish pub is um, it's more than just a place for drinking. It's, it's it, because we don't have the same kind of structure or welfare state uh, outside of the church. It's um, or what the church used to be in Ireland. The pub is the most important uh, institution. It's where everything happens. It's, we don't really have a tradition of coffee shop culture. So if you wanted to meet anyone, if you wanted to read a book, if you wanted to study, if you wanted to make job applications, if you, anything you want to do, you do it all the pub. So it's a really important location. And uh, music and culture tends to flourish around the pub, including a lot of poetry and theatre. So pubs are also traditionally a place for like families and children and stuff, yeah. but not only for adults drinking. No, far from it. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the, there are pubs that you wouldn't bring your kids, or at certain times you'd know better than to bring them there. But uh, a lot of my memories are from being a small kid crawling around on the floor uh, playing with dogs and stuff. And they, also, <laughs> they serve food, right? Yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's also like a restaurant. Yeah, pub group. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not fancy restaurant, but um, no, no, but like good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, when you play folk music here in Helsinki with your Irish lads, uh, yeah, the Helsinki, I should say what they're called. The, the, the Helsinki Harps is the name of the Helsinki group. Harps. Yeah, so we're like we're a folk group, so we just call ourselves the Helsinki Harp Folk Group. <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> Do you play harp any? No, not yet. Any, any harpists want to join us, they're more welcome. But uh, a typical instrument to bring from, from bar to bar, you know. 
Yeah, it's, it can be like there's small harps now. Yeah, sure. But so the audience who comes to hear you are they all Irish? No, 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 no. It's a good mixture, and um, because it has a good music, has a Irish music has a good international representation. So uh, a lot of people be exposed to internationally as well, and it's it's very communal based. Mm. There are sing-along songs, and then there are songs where everybody goes quiet and they listen and they respect the singer. So there's a good combination, a good balance of things. Mm. And um, we're not brilliant musicians. Some of us have only been playing for a year or two, but like we play together regularly. And uh, it's, it's, as I said before, it's like it's just a it's a means of expression. It's a cathartic release. Is there a large Irish community in Helsinki? Yeah, there's more. There's not large people anywhere in the world wherever you go. It seems there's a lot more Irish people outside of Ireland than are in Ireland. It's very nomadic culture. I suppose that yeah, it has a long history of immigration, and uh, so in the United States and Australia and New Zealand and other places, there's an awful lot of Irish Americans, Irish Australians, that kind of thing. But even just working abroad, it's, it's kind of a rite of passage. Like everybody has to go leave for a while, oh. or usually there's someone in the family who does that. Yeah, and I'm here because uh, my partner's Finnish and they lived with me in Ireland for several years and they've been here for several years. Mm -hmm. They say Irish people were slaves as well. They weren't in the same way. They were indentured servants. And this is a song about indentured servitude written by a man on hunger strike smuggled out of the H block in someone's arse and put to a medal. It's a powerful song. <laughs> Out from our sweet corn of the Australia bound in the kingdom ground, the marks of our feathers and rusty iron chains bid farewell to our ways. Our good women keep them in sorrow.
maybe lastly, just um, the name of the show. Oh yes, good thing you remembered. <laughs> I remembered like a few moments ago, and then I forgot it again. Like uh, it was interesting when you mentioned the, the metal piece with the allegorical drawings, or like you said, it looks like a stack of bricks, like a brick wall. Mm -hmm. As I, you were the first person to say it. It was completely accidental because the name of the show was uh, Behind the Wall, Tickling Bricks. So people thought it was on purpose yes. because of the title? Yeah, sure. Okay, so like, but, no, repeat the title of the show yeah. again. Behind the Wall, Tickling the Bricks. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, so, like, um, it's very hard to imagine what that is. Are you trying to think of someone or something behind the wall of a room? Tickling, like tickling is into like you know makes someone laugh. Yeah. Uh, but like tickling the the bricks is kind of it's kind of grotesque. To me, the the image is kind of uh, it's a bit upsetting almost. It's a bit repulsive, and it's a thing that I used to hear a lot as a kid um, in my family. If you asked for something, you said, "Where are my shoes?" Uh, I ran to them and say, "It's behind the wall, tickling the bricks," which basically meant like. Don't ask me, it's not my responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's not actually what that, the actual phrase means something different, but that's what it meant uh, in my family. <laughs> so okay. it was kind of, it was kind of misappropriated. But, uh, <laughs> because yeah. of a misunderstanding? Or? So, I don't know. Yeah, I know it's something that maybe my parents, parents said to them, so they kind of passed it on. And I just thought it was a very interesting, um, like, visual, uh, you know, that I just, it stuck with me. And uh, I just wanted to use something that was um, just sort of visually commanding with words. Yeah, and <laughs> for me, I get like this imagery, but there's a Danish movie where there's the guy living inside the wall. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a disturbing idea. And um, I know that my sister said to me recently when she heard the name of the show, she remembered being in my grandmother's house uh, after my grandmother had said that to my sister. And my sister sat on the bed staring at the wallpaper, trying to, you know, visualize this man behind the wall tickling the bricks with his fingers. <laughs> or a little feather. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was a piece of like um, linguistic imagery that stuck with me. Do you have a lot of sayings in oh, Ireland yeah. like this? Yeah, we do. Yeah. yeah. Far like Irish people when they communicate, we can communicate almost exclusively in Irish. And idiomatic languages like image language or metaphors or like um, these like uh, transferred meanings, say yeah. like uh, old sayings or yeah, yeah. parables and all this. Yeah, yeah. No, we're really, really dense with that sort of thing to the point that I have to be careful not to use it when speaking to non-Irish people because, because they don't know what the hell you are saying. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, think, um, I think that's all called Hibernian English. What? Hibernian English. I don't know what that means. Yeah, so Hibernian is like the old Latin word for Ireland. Oh! So it's basically just Irish English. Yeah, you might associate it with James Joyce or Samuel Beckett. Okay. Yeah. And um, what does the original saying behind the wall, tickling the bricks, mean? If it, this was a surprise to me, if I remember right. It was, um, it was something like uh, when someone is choosing some form of cowardice rather than confronting an issue. Okay, so like conflict shy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
which was completely new to me. I was quite surprised to learn. I don't really understand the <laughs> metaphor. Like you stand behind the wall, tickling the bricks because you're afraid to go out and yeah, like speed so. head on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good interpretation, Danny. That's weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so, do you connect this, your own version of the same, or like this imagery, do you connect it to the pieces uh, in this exhibition? In, or? in a sense, I suppose, um, in a sense only, because all of the work is uh, informed by external things, uh, like these are all influences that come from you know, childhood and all that, or just your, your life up to this point, and uh, I felt like some kind of like emotional association with the, with the memory, which was words, was just as good a piece of influence. And again, I do like the creepiness to it, I can't deny there's a, I am trying to instill a sense of spookiness throughout all the work. I think it's healthy. <laughs> but these pieces were not created for this exhibition, they are like... Uh, the only piece that was made specifically was the, um, well, the video piece was sort of recreated, mm. and the the large metal piece on the wall as well, specifically for the show. Okay, so after you had applied for the show, you started uh, etching these metal pieces. Yeah. Yeah. How what do you etch them with? By the way, we forgot to talk about that. It's an engraving pen. It's something like a tattooing pen. It's okay. Just a, it has a little sharp point that moves quickly. Ah, oh, okay. So it's not by hand; it's mechanical. Yeah, it's like I mean, mechanical by hand. Okay. So, and the rest of the pieces where you just already had them and decided that they fit together? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's because, you know, it's, it's, it's usually only when you have a, an exhibition or maybe when you put all your work on the website or whatever, you can start to actually identify common themes in your work, unless you have a very specific motivation to your work. But otherwise, if you're just making things, uh, Finding common threads and themes in the work can only be done, I think, um, done well retroactively. Yeah, or at least like um, you start seeing these movements and waves in yeah. your own expressions retroactively, yeah. even if you didn't intentionally do so. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Do you feel like yours have changed over time? I know that I do. Like for a while, I used a lot of neon colors everywhere, and I don't. I think it's been a while since I've done that, but I definitely had a few years where I used a lot of like neon rainbow colors and stuff. And so, do you feel like your general style has it always been in this like very organic, focused, religious uh, corner, or or has it like changed over time? It's, it's changed uh, as I start using new um, ways to make work. Uh, I've been making video art for a couple of years, but I only recently got access to certain kinds of um, uh, uh, software. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a whole new, you know, set of brushes to play with. Yeah, for sure, and new tools to learn how to use. Yeah, I, I, I only self-taught with things like um, After Effects and um, Adobe Suite stuff. Because beforehand I was making animations, but I was making them with um, scanning things onto you know, free software because they were just things that were accessible. Mm -hmm. And you know what what you create with those things that they're limited by like what you're able to do with that work, so you get different results. 
I used to do analog Photoshop with a normal inkjet printer. Yeah, sure, yeah. And yeah. then I would print on the same photo paper multiple times. Yeah. Uh, so I would like, I would edit all my photos in the built-in Windows image uh, editing, which is super basic and limited. Like we're talking Windows Seven, and the built-in like image editing options are very back to basics. It I feels have, like I paint. Have a very similar process. I would record myself like in a costume or something, and then I would uh, screenshot, you know, with the keyboard every every scene. And then I would print out all of those screenshots, and then physically, you know, draw on top of them, mm. scan them back in again, and then clip them all back together again. And it could take days. So like rotoscoping, but yeah. like actually rotoscoping. And it could it could be for like a thirty second clip or whatever. But you look back at them now, and, and you can still see a kind of a similar aesthetic in that work, uh, you know. And, and I, I couldn't achieve get that particular. Um, that results if I was using, you know, more coding edge software. Well, it would have been different. Sure. I mean, I worked in layers before I ever tried out Photoshop um, with this, like, what I used to call it analog Photoshop this way. Yeah. I didn't have the software, I didn't know how to use it. So what I did was when I was making posters for events and stuff, I would like, yeah, have the photo on the screen, I would print a word document with the text and the font that I like in approximately the size that I yeah. thought it should be yeah. in approximately the place on the page where I thought it should be according to the image and then I would have the image in the same paper size on the screen so like an A4 paper printed out an A4 image on the screen and then I would physically hold the paper on top of my laptop yeah. screen and see if the text was in the right place for the poster and if it was not I would move it in Word and I would print a new one <laughs> and then when it was in the right place I would print this Word uh, document on top of the actual like photo print yeah because you can just reload the same paper into the printer multiple times oh sure yeah, yeah. and if you use like quality photo paper like it really can um, absorb a lot of ink yeah. So, yeah, this is how I used to make uh, posters for concerts and stuff. Yeah, like you're using a light box, basically. That's it's somewhere in between the punk, uh, like, cutout, uh, yeah. everything is just like a, on an old copy thing where you, like, tape your little collage. Yeah. And then, like, it's some kind of idea of Photoshop working without actually having software to do sure. it. Yeah, yeah. Would you return to that sort of thing? Would you go back and do it? Uh, yeah, I, I do have my own inkjet printer. I haven't used it for years, so I'm afraid that the nozzle is like dried up. But I, what I used to like to do was also to leave some of the cartridges empty when they ran out, because then it starts being really funky with the colors it prints. Yeah, yeah. It starts making like um, color glitches. Uh -huh because of how the colors cannot uh, mix how it wants to. So in a printer you have cyan, uh, magenta, yellow and black, uh, CMYK. Mm -hmm. And so the color is mixed from those colors. And when you're missing one of those, then the palette becomes really odd. And I've been playing around with the idea if I had a spare printer that I could like swap some of the ink cartridges so that the printer doesn't know what color it's printing and stuff. And I would definitely like to go back to this kind of like accidental um, glitch work because yeah. I mean now I work a lot with 
video and stuff and like analog video mixers and there is similar ideas of... Yeah, you can force the glitch but... But also it's out of my hands, like things happen without me yeah. intentionally doing it and I yeah, like that. Sure. A little bit of a control freak, so I always try to do stuff where I take the control away from myself because it makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. I like to work with um, interactive things also so that people bring yeah. new things to my work that I don't have like control over. So yeah, I think now after working with a lot of different Adobe software and stuff, maybe I would like to go back to making yeah. just like A4 photo prints yeah, at home. <laughs> because yeah, I don't know. It's yeah, they have a different kind of like authenticity to them, like they're tactile. Like they're and it's very fast somehow because yeah, yeah. sometimes it's like big photo print lab and all these like very. When you have a very specific idea of what you want to do and you have the tools to make it perfect, you spend a long time also creating something very particular. Whereas the other is very just like try and go. Like it, you spit out a lot of stuff and you don't have the means to just like make it exactly how you could imagine it. So you have to go with what you can create. And I don't know, like the dogmas, like the limitations of things become also an artistic, like, yeah, inspiration. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, I don't know, like, yeah. Maybe it's all this fancy jazz software. Sure. I mean, like, now I'm in an art academy, I have all the means for it, <laughs> so this is why I have yeah. learned how to do all this. But it's also great. It's also yeah. wonderful, but I like lo-fi and stuff as well. I like the chart, which is sometimes also just a good excuse that I don't bother to do something perfect. So it's like ah, I like when it's fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um, okay. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe that was good. I don't know. Like. So uh, my name is a funny one, it's Owen O'Dowd, but my name is E-O-I-N and dash O-D-O-W-D. Yeah, Irish spelling. Yeah, it's purely there to confuse British people, that's the only reason we do it. <laughs> but I can put in the notes on the yeah, website exactly. where this goes, I can actually put a link there. Great. So, yeah, your website there, people can check out stuff. Yeah. And it will be a while until this is published, so maybe people can even like search for documentation of this show if they want to. But we'll be we'll be about it. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for telling us about Irish culture and history. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I, I mean it's I'll see what the next show is about. It could be something wildly different, but I guess that's kind of It'll certainly be influenced by the previous show. The next show is two Swedish artists living here who have made a lot of drawings, uh, each of them for a combined exhibition that actually has already happened and I didn't manage to see it in time because like sometimes that happens. So they're going to show me some of the drawings and, and tell me retrospectively about the show. Oh, okay, I see. Very good. Yeah. Um, 
I think it was about 80 drawings in total that they had each of them. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, this week I'm recording like three or four podcast episodes. Okay. It doesn't always go like that. Sometimes yeah, it's yeah. a month in between re sure. each recording and this. then sometimes it piles up and it's like a lot in one go. So that is, in two days I'm recording that and then I'm talking to a light artist also in this space. Okay. Oh yeah, I've seen, like, I've seen, I've seen some ads. <laughs> later, like on Thursday, now is Sunday evening, so on Thursday I'm coming back to this space. It's a busy space, uh, like they've got a really quick turnover, there's a bunch of shows. So. Did you have to pay rent to have your show? Yeah, yeah. 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 So in Helsinki the gallery style is usually that the artist has to pay rent, uh, which is a little bit weird for me, uh, but... Same with me. Yeah, it's, like, it's not normal internationally that artists have to pay rent and commission for the solo works. It's like... A but there, at least compared to my experience there, there is a more opportunity for grant support though. So you can potentially get those things paid off with grants. And also a lot of the... Um, independent art collectives are then revolving around facilitating cheaper uh, gallery spaces for exactly this purpose. So this space, Asbestos uh, Gallery, is one of those places that is run by artists and I know that it has been one of their objectives from the very beginning to keep the rent as low as possible so that artists can actually afford it because in some of the galleries, like the rent is Hi. Yeah. We are talking like six, eight hundred euros a week to that, have that really show goes, there. That just like really perpetuates like you know class issues about who actually has access to the space. You still have to pay them fifteen or twenty percent commission for any right. work you sell within that time. So imagine how much work you have to sell within one or two weeks of like paying the same rent as a one bedroom apartment. It's and you may have to take time off work to your vigilates or... Yeah, because you, like, there nobody's hired to keep the door open. You have to also do that. Like, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> so, at least these places exist. Yeah. That, but you didn't sell any works? It was not an exhibition? I have two bars, but they're, they'll be sold after the show. Okay, so you, you did have them on sale, the works? Yeah, yeah. Because you don't have yeah. prices up. No, that would like to that would affect the aesthetic of the show too much. So generally, I just have a little note at the end of the piece of paper outside the gallery saying prices are on the arrangement. Okay, yeah. So, so it doesn't become this weird commercial shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's places for that. <laughs> so which ones did you sell? If you want to discuss it. I sold this piece on the right uh, of a figure with an eye in the middle of their head, and all of these sort of type uh, sort of flames oh yeah I thought that it was like a lion's flame yeah yeah that's, that's perfectly legitimate like, it is just a lion <laughs> drawing it's not it's not a little, little representation of anything it's one of the reassembly collages for those yeah. listening okay and, and also the one on the far left of the the one with the sort of flaming uh, saint <laughs> oh yeah the flaming head with the city in the background yeah. it's yeah. to the same buyer no of course okay how do you feel about selling your works in this way? Uh, they are part of this collection somehow, but now they are getting like split and spread out. No, I, I, I try not to be too precious about that. I mean, especially now that they've had uh, two opportunities to be publicly exhibited. They've, they've, they've fulfilled their Christmas tree destiny. <laughs> oh, and also, maybe now it's just me calling them like a series or a collection. Maybe you do uh, perceive them as individual works? Yeah, I think I do, because I have about 40 of these or so. Wow. And uh, they've, they've been made just over the years, so, mm. so I mean, 
they're, they're sort of part of the collection because they were all made in Finland. Mm. But um, if you're going to like set those kind of definitions, like what's not there, so they could be a, a set that were made at the kitchen table as opposed to in the front room. So there's not really any sense. Oh yeah, sure. So now they get to live somewhere else, which yeah. is also <laughs> sure. cute in a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Nice. Well, thank you. Thanks for, so much. And thank you for listening. Uh, see you, I was about to say, but uh, we don't ever see each other, so like hear you later. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye.
Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it.